We've been talking about <clears throat> various aspects of the relationship with images, possibilities of ways we can sense that relationship and conceive of that relationship, our relationship with them, their relationship with us, their gaze, their love, etc., And so I want to continue a little bit expanding or filling out um, some aspects of uh, possibilities for relationship with image and um, weave that into some of the nodes, the elements. Of course, all the 28 nodes are, in a way, uh, various characterizations or qualifications of <coughs> our relationship with images. And the imaginal itself is more a relationship than a thing in itself. Uh, but relationship obviously implies uh, two, uh, two things, two entities, um, two subjects really. Um, and so that immediately um, uh, suggests our connects with our uh, element, our node of tunus, which we expanded uh, that that element to tunus differentiation, retaining of particularities. Uh, eros, we have said many times uh, in the way that we're defining and conceiving of it um, needs tunus. So there's an erotic tension between two, between this subject and that uh, uh, essentially subject because it, as I'll elaborate uh, what we are in erotic relationship with, we soon uh, if we're not already, we begin to sense as, as subject as other. So Eros needs tunas, and uh, where, I've said this before, where there's a uh, collapsing into melting, into union, lovely as that can be, uh, can be very, yes, lovely and fruitful sometimes, but um, with regard to the Eros between those two objects, then it then collapses at that moment. And the fertility of the Eros in terms of its insemination of the soul-making dynamic, its um, beautiful proliferation of, of um, more faces of the beloved and of self and of world, etc., that collapses as well when the, when the tunus collapses um, into, into union, into oneness. Um, important as that is uh, as a kind of experience at times. We uh, we could also, and we have said in the past, you know, eros will um, create and discover more uh, differentiation, more particularities, um, more otherness in a way. We have to be careful what we um, mean by that. And I can't remember if I've said this before, but it bears saying again. Um, so. Um, you know, a sense of otherness, a sense of an other, so a relationship with an other, a tunas, um, 
otherness is already a, a given for us most of the time. In other words, we um, the way consciousness works anyway, uh, and so the 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 um, constitution of experience entails involves a sense of otherness. Even when we know and perceive our fundamental oneness with all things. And that mystical sense, that important, beautiful, mystical sense of knowing and really perceiving this fundamental oneness with all things. Phenomenally, meaning in terms of appearance, others still appear to us. Even when I know deeply my oneness, I can still navigate in the world and whatever it is, go to the toilet, make my breakfast. Um, and this in, involves a, some degree of perception of other. The breakfast is other, the, the toast is other, the, uh, the, you know, the toilet bowl is other, etc. So f- even when we know oneness, um, phenomenally, other still appears to, to, to us. Others still appear to us. And perception uh, in the way that it works uh, delineates self and other. Um, eros, though, we say, cr- creates and discovers more otherness. But what do we mean when we say that? We don't really mean that it um, it creates a greater distance between self and other. Uh, as kind of alienation. Um, but rather, Eros will create and discover that we ongoing discovery and creation of more and more dimensions, particularities, aspects, images, uh, etc., within a beloved other. So that, that that beloved other has more faces of otherness, more kinds of otherness. They become... Uh, the othernesses there become plural and enrich, they complexify. So, two-ness, otherness, particularities, all that. Um, when wrapped up or con- very much connected with this element of two-ness, um, is autonomy. We talk about the autonomy of self and others. So let's let's um, take just a little time to unpack uh, some aspects of that. Um, when we're meditating with an image, when we're in contact, in dialogue, in relationship with an image, um, we'll probably uh, or likely have a sense. Again, it's it's something that we begin to notice, I'm pointing it out, that the image, or even just an aspect or a quality of that image, is somehow both me and not me. Is both mine and not mine. Uh, that's related to its echo, you know, infinite echoing and all kinds of things. So, these, uh, this, this sort of double sense... It's kind of me and it's kind of not me. It's kind of mine, uh, or this aspect that it has is kind of mine, uh, this quality that it has is kind of mine, and, and really kind of not mine. This this these, um, this double sense is part of the, the sense of its two-ness. It's also part of the image's autonomy, the imaginal figure's autonomy. Um, and maybe also part of its uh, of the, the imaginal middle way, me and not me. Uh, my 
mine and not mine. It's related to the neither real nor not real. But because of, of that uh, sense of two-ness and autonomy there, <coughs> um, uh, that can support uh, a sense of other elements, as usual with, with all the elements and the interconnectedness, the way they ignite and feed off and open each other up, turn each other on. So that with other, with the autonomy of the other, the, the, the otherness of the other and the two-ness there, there can be a sense of grace, of gift. We're receiving something. Love also between the two. Um, uh, sometimes might notice we, we, we love them more when we recognize their autonomy. Beauty mystery, unfathomability, dimensionality, all of this is supported by that sense of otherness in many ways. Um, we may, sometimes we've, uh, in, the, in the element of autonomy of self and other, we've also mentioned uh, personhood as a possible, uh, as possibly wrapped up a sense of personhood, uh, not just a sense of the autonomy of the image, but a sense of the personhood of the image. Sometimes I think we've put that out as part of the teaching. Um, That's maybe a little more... um, uh, you know, questionable, or maybe, maybe not, could could be included, not sure. Um, So, I think autonomy, the autonomy of the image is always there. That's a, a, a crucial aspect of some of an image becoming fully imaginal. It's not just a part of me. It's not completely under my control, etc. It's it's like a being. Uh, it is a being. It has its own autonomy, its own intelligence, its own will, its own perception, its own um, desire, etc. Um, personhood, as I said, a little more. Mm, not sure. Um, so definitely, of course, sometimes we have the sense of personhood of an image. We might even have a sense of personhood, <coughs> for example, of a tree. We usually think of that as a person, but we can feel its personhood as well as its autonomy when we're sensing it with soul. But a lot of these things depends on where we draw the line, uh, depend on where we draw the line with definitions. So um, I think at one point, uh, and I mentioned it the other day, I delineated four kinds of uh, um, domains or kinds of experience that can open up from an image. And uh, if I remember the third one uh, was this kind of space of the essence or the character of an imaginal figure. So someone was asking a question, it was the Aslan, they were meditating on Aslan, the lion from Lion, Witch and Wardrobe, from the Narnia Tales. And um, the uh, perception, at some point, the perception of Aslan as a form faded, but the, um, uh, and went into an em- a vast empty space, but that space was imbued with the, the essence, the character of Aslan. So, very um, uh, beautiful possibility can happen sometimes, not, not sure it should go there all the time, but, um, but still in, in the domain of the imaginal and soul-making, definitely. Um, and we mentioned uh, the other night uh, this, the sense of the four elements 
um, earth, air, fire, and water, and them having dimensionality, divinity, mystery, unfathomability, etc., and the way they connect with your body and the possibility of meditating that way. But uh, they may or may not have personhood. If they get connected with those four goddesses, then they can begin to have personhood. But they, they may or may not. Um, still, though, they might have this autonomy. Um, so, again, it depends on definitions, um, how we're going to uh, draw the lines between these words. When we talk about the autonomy of self and other, so that element of the imaginal, uh, the autonomy of both self and other, both self and the imaginal object, <coughs> the beloved other. So, um, let's just put, uh, linger for a while on, on the sense of the autonomy of self. And this is quite a uh, important one and sometimes a tricky one for, for some people at different stages in their life and in their practice. So, uh, an integral and important aspect of imaginal practice is that the self retains a sense of autonomy. We're not being taken over or possessed or kind of... Um, uh, losing our sense of choice or will or discernment, etc., um, by the image. No, nothing like that is uh, certainly not being encouraged. Nothing like that is really going on. Um, so when I talked about um, anchoring the other day, that an Im- uh, the dimensionality of uh, that an image has, and that sense of depth that it has, that sense of kind of um, possessing other levels or emanating from other levels and that being able to provide us with an anchor uh, and and so keep us stable uh, in regard to the vicissitudes of life and um, so the anchor is like a kind of root as well you know like a tree part of the function of the roots of the tree is to keep it stable to keep it upright to stop it getting blown over by the wind so we can talk at times, uh, and I have uh, used the, the phrase at times, to be rooted in the divine, or rooted in the angelic, rooted in that dimensionality, um, rooted in, in the angelic dimension, or in the archetype, etc. Um, but that root, uh, or being rooted that way, and anchored that way, doesn't mean an in inflexibility then when we're not kind of pegged to the to the uh, to the spot and immobile while something else has the autonomy and the mobility and uh, we are being done to uh, solely so we still retain the autonomy of self there and that means um, freedom our freedom is there um, to a, to a large extent uh, meaning we can um, choose uh, how to practice, when to practice, when to get up from practice, what to do in practice, uh, uh, our, our pacing, our pausing, etc. We're not stuck somewhere in this kind of anchoring and rooting. So there's all the gifts of a kind of anchoring and rooting, but not a kind of um, frozen subjugation, immobility, imprisonment, etc. 
So, as I said, this is quite important for some people, perhaps given their history, given their um, psychology, etc., for all kinds of reasons. Um, so, what do we mean? People use that word autonomy um, in, in terms of uh, psychology. They use it um, uh, in, in different psychologies. It's used quite quite differently. Uh, in different ways. I think in imaginal practice, autonomy, uh, what we mean is, um, as I said, it's related to the tuna. So it, in, it is, involves some sense of the distinctness, the tuners, um, the differentiation of self and other, self and imaginal object, self and beloved erotic other, whatever that is, human, uh, tree, angel, image, demon, whatever. So it, it is based on that, but also, as I said, uh, it, the autonomy of the self, um, it, some, so some sense of the distinctness of self and other, at a certain level, at least, even if you know the oneness, and an ability uh, of, the, of the self to assent or dissent, uh, to contact with the image, so we can refuse contact at any point if we want. We can stop it, we can turn away, we can do something else, we can engage in another practice, we can get up. Um, so the ability of the self is retained to assent or dissent to contact or engagement with an imaginal figure, or to the duty. So that's an important fact as well. As a duty often comes, we talk about as there's a limit to the kind of freedom that we get with the imaginal because of the burden of duty. But the duty is also something that we, um, we, we retain autonomy with. We can say no to a duty. Uh, we can say no to part of a duty. We can say no to a certain manifestation of a duty, etc. So this retention of our capacity to discern and to choose, to assent or dissent, this is what we mean by autonomy in the context of imaginal practice. Uh, autonomy is with respect to the aspects um, uh, of relationship with the other which feel or are soul-making. So it's very specific. We're talking about what's the relationship uh, with not just the imaginal figure, but particularly those aspects of the image that feel um, uh, or that are sensed as soul-making. And there's autonomy in relation to those. So we're not just swept up and kind of catapulted, you know, willy-nilly and beyond our will um, in, into some region of, of kind of possession or imprisonment. Uh, sometimes in you know, modern psychology or some spiritual circles, autonomy is used in a, in a, in a kind of much more absolute and general way. Um, so we're, we're, we're being quite specific here in, in what we mean by it. Um, but just to, just to make a point there um, about uh, the way we can be influenced by, uh, I touched on this the other day, the way we can be influenced by kind of what are the current 
popular or dominant psychological paradigms. So when we think about what does it mean to have, in general, a sense of uh, healthy autonomy of self, um, I, I wonder, or I want to point out again, um, that that, that, that uh, sense or model of uh, what is a healthy autonomy of self is culturally and historically contingent. Um, it's an idea and a sense, a model uh, given to us by whatever culture or subcultures we move in. And you only have to um, look back in history or look to other contemporary cultures or, or even subcultures um, to, to see that what, what um, perhaps you and I might share as, as a, a kind of almost automatic sense of what, what's involved in a, a healthy uh, autonomy in our psychology um, is, is very contingent. The whole way we tend to feel ourselves, uh, or the whole way we kind of uh, um, conceive of the self and feel it, and I- included uh, in that is our, our sense of you know, what it means to be a healthy self, etc., psychologically. Um, there's a case, and it has been made by others, there's a case that self is... Um, you know the way we feel and conceive it now, and the emphasis we give it, and the the, the the models we have of what a healthy one looks like, is actually a kind of secular, liberal, capitalist, Western, um, modern idea. You know, um, what happens if we kind of acknowledge that? Can we um, bring that acknowledgement into our understanding of soul making dharma? So we're not assuming uh, uh, a kind of unquestionable truth about uh, about self in general. So as I said, just have to think back or, or do a little research into the self-sense or the idea of self, of self in, say, medieval Europe. But before the Protestant uh, Reformation, before the rise of capitalism and individualism and all that, or in Aboriginal cultures, cultures, or uh, Japan, even in the first half of the twentieth century, you know, very different, um, and with that, a different idea about autonomy and psychological health and relational health. So what is it to have my autonomy in this relationship? And some of that, you know, we have to say, is culturally conditioned. Some of that cultural conditioning, of course, will creep into the soul-making dharma. Um, of course it will. Or, you know, it's interesting, um, well, it's partly interesting, to, um, to to track Sartre's sort of development of his thinking. Um, and in his late thought, he had this sort of Marxist ideal of merging, the individual merging into and identifying with the group. Um, so it was almost like losing one's autonomy, and that was his um, kind of ideal uh, there. So all these different ideals. Um, and what, anyway, we might ask is autonomy in a consumerist world of, um, you know, saturation with advertising. Am I, am I really autonomous when I'm being fed all these messages that I, uh, I can't help being influenced by? So that's a little bit of an aside, but in a way where 
mostly wanting to talk about it in a very um, specific way uh, in regards to images and working in diets and soul-making practice. Uh, Mostly. Um, What does this mean, autonomy? It's, yeah, we could almost, as I say, overlaps with the uh, element of tunas. Um, uh, but the word itself, auto, autonomy, is from autonomos, two Greek words. So auto is actually meaning self, and nomos it means law. So it, it kind of means self-governing and self-choosing. So we retain uh, this, or we develop this capacity um, if, if it needs developing, but, but actually we retain it, um, this uh, uh, capacity to, to choose uh, what we do, when we do, how much we do, etc., in imaginal relationship. Um, so, it's possible to exercise this, uh, this capacity of, the, of, of our own, of the self's autonomy. And for some people, that's actually a really, really important stage. There might be all kinds of wonderful images flying around and visiting and all kinds of openings. And um, but and it's not to say one can't go with that and explore those. But, uh, again, it doesn't have to be linear. But somewhere along the line, uh, for some people, there needs to be a kind of uh, shoring up uh, of and... Um, reassuring uh, oneself of the aspect of the self's autonomy. Um, So, for example, within an imaginal relationship, within an imaginal constellation, what do I go with? Uh, My sense of, I I can, uh, I need to have a sense, I can choose what what aspect to go with. that I can say no, that I can slow the whole thing down and go at my pace, or or go faster, or whatever, that I can pause the whole thing, you know. And so actually practicing that with an image, with some people I've worked with, it's, it's, it's helpful for them, for, for, for me to uh, kind of help them do that as we work with an image, uh, until they internalize it a bit more. In some instances, the image is actually uh, helping them do that, interestingly, very beautifully. Um, So that practice, of course, uh, one can do in a diet, in a soul-making diet. And of course, going back, despite what I said about cultural conditioning, um, it is, uh, we could say, we could adopt the view, uh, the popular view, that's actually part of healthy and fertile human relationships, to retain that capacity uh, to do all that in relationship in the moment, or at least after after a little bit, say, oh, hold, hold on, I, I lost I lost my autonomy there, or I, I I I couldn't I wasn't in touch with what I wanted or what I needed, etc. And to to point that out, go back and redo something. So the uh, sometimes it's a question of exercising it. I will, um, I don't think I'll speak about it now, but maybe when 
if I talk about dyads, I will say a little bit, I hope, about the actual practice of what we call tunus, or sometimes we call it balance of attention, as that's very connected with this, obviously, and and there's some... Uh, it's a really helpful practice for many people, and, and quite, despite how simple it sounds, it's actually quite challenging, and there's some things that can help there. Really, really worth practicing with that. Uh, what we call tunus practice or balance of attention practice. We'll come back to that later. But one can exercise in the ways that I just described. One can also uh, just recognize that, that one's autonomy is still there. Um, so even, as I said, when um, when it seems like an image is very powerful or it, it kind of uh, exerts a, a kind of claim or, or gives us a, on us or gives us a duty, etc. We can actually, even within all that, at the same time, almost paradoxically, perhaps not quite a paradox, but uh, we can recognize that we still have autonomy. So, for example, when I gave that example of the uh, the claim of the God of music that it had on, on me, and the power that it had uh, on my life. Um, there's that vulnerability there, etc. There's the recognition of that claim and the autonomy of the image and the power of the image, uh, etc. in my life. But uh, I still have autonomy. I can choose uh, what to do with that uh, claim and that pull. I can choose how to relate to it. I can choose how much to explore it and in what ways to explore it, etc. So sometimes uh, we shore up and, as I said, reassure ourselves of our own autonomy, of ourselves' uh, autonomy in relation to an image just by recognizing it. Again, there's so much about imaginal practice that's... Um, it sometimes needs doing this, doing that, pulling this here, yanking that, make more of this, etc., open that. And sometimes it's just a matter of recognizing something. And in recognizing, in noticing some aspect or some element, it amplifies it. And, uh, and that's the case too with our own sense of our autonomy. Uh, but this uh, tunus. And and also the 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 double autonomy of both of self and other. Um, this uh, allows and opens the eros. As we said, eros and tunus they're going to be connected uh, and implicit in each other. And as we've said right from the beginning in all these soul making teachings, um, the eros. Uh, it inseminates, it fertilizes uh, the psyche, meaning the whole sense of the image, um, uh, what we're sensing with soul, uh, and and also the logos, the ideation that we have, the concepts that we have. So uh, the the tunus is important to allow the kind of um, I don't know if we've got the principal sort of. Uh, driver or catalyst or spark or engine of the whole soul-making dynamic, the Eros. Um, so let's say a little bit about about that and the connection there. Um, I was uh, 
someone came in for an interview uh, some time ago and um, reported an image of um, a big woman, uh, a huge, uh, <laughs> large woman. I think she had lots of arms, I can't remember. Um, like Avalokiteshvara, like uh, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara. Um, and the image was of this yogi sitting in this in this big woman's lap. And uh, and she asked herself, she was reporting on her practice, she said, what kind of... So she was experimenting and exploring the elements, the nodes a little bit, and she said, well, what kind of love do I have for her? What kind of love do I have for this big woman who's holding me in her lap? I'm resting in her lap. And the answer came, lusty love. And so there was lust, in this case, this sexual eros there. Okay, remember, eros doesn't uh, necessarily need to be sexual. Our definition is uh, broader than that, but it includes sexual eros. So in this case, lusty love. And the uh, the, the, the yogi started, um, went with that a little bit, and started uh, licking the goddess's belly. Uh and then her breasts, and sucking her breasts, etc. And there was a lot of sexual energy that came with that. At that point she got a little worried. There was a lot of uh, sexual energy, and it sort of, um, yeah, concerned her a little bit. We're not, again, we're not used to that. We're certainly not used to that in a meditative context, where we're taught that that's defilement, etc. We've talked about all this uh, many times before. So she got a little concerned, and so she pulled back a little bit. Um, and then very wisely, very, very skillful practice, okay, there's a little concern here. Again, there's the self-autonomy. I recognize a concern. I pull back. I pause. And then I decide to return in my own time, um, but with a slightly different uh, uh, inclination, a slightly different um, intention. Um, so she returned to the goddess and and sought out the divinity and the duty there. So in other words, she's focusing on other nodes and not getting so swept up in this sort of um, uh, growing uh, se- sexual energy that was there. So very skillful uh, response at that point uh, and also an exercise of her own autonomy. Uh, and in in the sense of being with the goddess then and exploring the divinity and the duty, um, the, she noticed the goddess wants to and does nourish. That's what the goddess does. It's her it's her fulfillment. This goddess uh, uh, exists for the sake of nourishing. Um, and so in a way, partly the duty then, partly the duty, is to open to that nourishment. Open to the the suckling uh, nourishment uh, from the goddess. And I asked her in the interview if if the goddess could be present now, and, 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 uh, and she could. Um, so uh, then I asked her how her body feels, um, how the practitioner's body feels, and she said... Um, very open in the chest, uh, all of which was was kind of very clear. You could sense that. Um, and then I asked her, "Can you experience 
the goddess's experience of her own body? Can you enter into, get a feel for the, the goddess's experience of her own body? And she could, and she felt the, uh, the openness of that body that was uh, open to give, to nourish, that the, the milk could flow, the, the, uh, the, the nourishment, the elixir could flow, the giving could flow. The openness, the fearlessness that the goddess felt in herself, in her body, the power, the joy, the abundance of her generous uh, nourishing of others and of beings. So all this was kind of... Um, the, the goddess was full uh, of, of these qualities and by entering into that experience, feeling into, resonating with uh, kind of uh, uh, got a direct kind of taste of that. Uh, I sensed with that yogi that, that those kind of, um, that openness, that fearlessness, that power and joy and uh, generous uh, abundant nourishing of others, I sense that actually um, this might be, uh, these might be uh, mirrors uh, of this yogi's being that perhaps uh, were only inchoately, uh, only vaguely, only dimly uh, sensed, or only in their initial sort of seed phase. And uh, that part of the duty here for her, for this yogi, might be to mirror and echo that goddess in her life and all that abundance and power, joy, fearlessness, giving, nourishment, openness, etc. Um, a kind of angel out ahead then, calling this uh, this practitioner to... Um, to manifest something, to calling them to echo the angel, calling them for that to that refraction in one's life, uh, and finding what that might mean, creating, discovering what that might mean. So I lightly suggested something like that, but in, in different words. I didn't. I don't want to be too. You know, sometimes you just feel like better for people to discover things themselves. Sometimes it's okay if I point it out. Sometimes there's a kind of middle way there. Um, uh, but again, we have the Eros, um, the Eros allowing, uh, the Eros fertilizing a whole process then. Um, but then that means that we have to tolerate eros and we have to be okay with eros and in this case tolerate and be okay with and respond wisely to and creatively to uh, sexual eros and sexual energy there which was quite uh, intense and full when we um, <clears throat> talk about the autonomy of the image so there's the autonomy of the self and there's the autonomy of the image. We said this sort of double-aspected element. When we talk about the autonomy of the image, um, uh, it's also, you know, it's not in contradiction to a sense of interconnectedness and even a knowing of oneness, etc. 
so I have a friend who, um, for quite some years now, she um, uh, senses her ovaries with soul. So there's a sensing the soul of her ovaries. They 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 become uh, alive, dimensional. Um, with their own intelligence, with their own desire, with their own sensibility, they become autonomous. And um, we've talked about this, she's reported it in different ways, I'm sure I've only heard a fraction of it, but um, she has a soul sense of her ovaries as deities, and their sense of things um, as autonomous entities. so how do they experience things? What's their response to things? What's their sensibility? And they know their own autonomy. Uh, and so they have that autonomy and they know their own autonomy and their own power. That's also related, power and autonomy, of course. Uh, we go back to the autonomous self-governing. Um, but they know that her sense was it, they know that at the same time and naturally mixed with their knowing of their embeddedness. So the autonomy is not, as I said, in contradiction to um, their knowing their embeddedness, their interconnectedness. When we were talking at that time, she was talking about their sense of um, the the ovaries existing in in a kind of ocean, an imaginal ocean. And so they they had a sense of their own power, their own autonomy, but also their embeddedness and interconnectedness within that imaginal ocean. Uh, and uh, and also their interconnectedness with what they are in relationship with, whatever that is at the time, sensing this, sensing that. They are organs of perception, instruments of perception, soul instruments. Um, and, for example, their dependence on... Uh, sperm, if, if there wants to be concept, conception, etc. So autonomy um, of image is not in contradiction. It can include, just like the uh, self's autonomy can include um, a sense of knowing oneness at the same time. We don't lose that autonomy. And neither does the image. with um, the you know one aspect of the autonomy uh, of the image if we're relating it to eros as well is is that um, there is this anteros anteros a n t e r o s i think i mentioned it um, maybe in one talk i can't remember when so in classical greek mythology anteros is is one of the erotes a sort of this uh, uh, club is the wrong word, band, gang of um, semi-divine beings. Uh, Eros is, is the principal one. Pothos we've talked about as part of our definition of Eros, Himeros and Anteros. Um, maybe some others, I can't remember. But Anteros is the god of requited love. In other words, the returning of love. So... Uh, well, in actually, in our definition, he's the god of requited eros, the returning of eros. So that's the point I want to make, that um, uh, there's not just love and being loved, there's eros and being the object of eros. So we, we have emphasized more in the teachings the eros from the self 
to the uh, beloved other, to the imaginal object, etc., to whatever we're sensing the soul. But again, as as you get used to the imaginal uh, terrain and the eyes, uh, the sensibilities get uh, to notice more there. One, one will begin to recognize, oh, not only does this imaginal other love me back in very particular ways that I may need to get used to or may not notice at first, it also has eros for me. And that's eros, remember, is... Uh, so the love might be bigger than we usually think of love, but when we talk about eros, our definition, our conception of eros, it's more than being loved. Uh, it kind of may be implicit in it, the love, but uh, it's more than that. So the eros flows flows both ways, and we can uh, recognize ourselves and open to uh, recognize ourselves as objects of eros, gazed at, related to, with eros by the imaginal other by whatever we're sensing with soul and we can open to that and what is it to feel oneself as beloved erotic other for this uh, for this beloved erotic other um, so that uh, again that eros may not be is not necessarily sexual there might be but it might uh, it, it might be just eros in 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 a non-sexual sense. Either way, it's going to be healing. I think I mentioned this, I can't remember the context, on the last retreat, the roots into the ground of soul, you know, um, to really know oneself uh, as an, uh, uh, as a beloved erotic, uh, an object of beloved eros. Um, does something to the being and to the soul sense and to the way we relate to ourselves. We can start relating to ourselves uh, with Eros. And that's more than love, which is more than Metta. So all these are important. Metta, love, and Eros. But one of, again, one of the implicit... uh, dimensions of the autonomy of the image is the anteros, the fact that they can have their own eros for us. And in recognizing that, in tuning to it, in opening to it, in assenting to it, excuse me, over time, that's going to be healing the soul uh, at all kinds of levels. Healing is not even the right word, opening the soul. Opening the sense of self, opening the sense of existence at all kinds of levels. Maybe sexual, often not sexual, doesn't matter. And if we come back to this relationship of eros and desire and autonomy, and we talk about the self's autonomy, uh, again, (coughs) um, I really want to just keep mentioning this this caveat of, about cultural views, etc. But um, we would tend to think of uh, an autonomous self, someone who has a, a kind of um, a sense of their own autonomy, as also, you know, included in that means a relationship with um, their own desire, so that they n- know... Uh, themselves with respect to desire and their eros. 
And that old uh, maxim from, I don't know where it's from, Athens or wherever, the ancient philosophers, um, maybe even before that, uh, know, know thyself. Um, included in that must be the uh, knowing of oneself in relationship to desire, in relationship to one's ears. Um, so again, that's quite a, a popular cultural view nowadays that may be not shared by all cultures, but certainly for the soul-making dharma in the larger sense, it's important, this whole journey and exploration and opening to, and to desire and beginning to understand it more, beginning to uh, unpack some of the constrictions uh, of, of the ways we've been indoctrinated in, in relationship to it or shaped uh, just from other factors and relational factors, etc., over the years with it. Beginning to unpack that and understand it and validate our desire and discern uh, different kinds of desire and healthy desire, etc. And that's part of knowing oneself and the, the sort of importance of that. So if, if if I don't know what goes on for me um, in terms of uh, regarding passion, desire, longing, goals, wishes, my relationship to them, my view of them, how or whether I can give myself to them fully, what is ego, what is deeper desire, then I don't really know myself. And my uh, life because I don't know well, I haven't opened out and explored uh, and questioned those areas and those thrusts of my life, my heart's desire and all that, all that's involved with that, I I don't really know myself. And my life um, will be prevented from being as um, full as it can be. Or my the gifts that I uh, potentially can um, put out into the world, bestow, offer to others through my being, through my actions, through my speech, etc. Um, they also won't be as fully able to come, to be born into the world, to be given into the world. And what else are we here for? What else are we here for but that? Um, but this is hard, and I, I, in the sense that, you know, some proportion of people, and even some proportion of people in, who are attracted to soul-making dharma, um, all that has gotten very uh, jammed up, or confused, or limited, or constricted, or it's painful. And sometimes, you know, a couple of people have told me, you know, whenever you ask, what do you want, what do you really want, or that kind of question, it... it it just freezes me, it drives me crazy. Um, and as I said, there might be real uh, cultural conditioning going on. Certain cultures, even contemporary cultures, don't put a lot of emphasis on individual desire, personal desire, knowing that, differentiating it, pursuing it. Of course, that's changing with the sort of um, westernization of, of the global culture, but um, still, that cultural conditioning still operates um, for many people. And of course, there's Dharma conditioning as well. Uh, we've talked about before, that just 
tends to denigrate desire, or at least not not really explore it in a uh, let's say a uh, not really explore its full range of colours uh, in the psychology and in the being and the ramifications of all that. So yes, it's really important, um, and it's part of our autonomy as human beings. Um, and there's uh, all kinds of cultural factors and individual factors as well. The conditioning that goes on there. But when we um, when we explore this this aspect, like the relationship with desire, or, or beginning to understand our desire, and that whole realm is huge. You know, we're really talking about a huge subject. Uh, and that, as an as a, as a, uh, a a strand, a large strand, um, a weave of threads within the whole um, subject of our our sense of our own autonomy. But there's certain things that are uh, worth pointing out and exploring in the, in that whole uh, relationship with desire. So I can't remember if I've pointed these out before, but. I, it doesn't matter, I'll, I'll, I'll say them again. Um, so when we talk about desire, um, it's always connected to other things. Obviously it's connected to an object, but it's always connected uh, or, or in a field of conditions, so to speak, which um, shape the whole field of that desire and our relationship with it, our part of our relationship with it, and, and what then ensues. So... I'll mention four right now. Um, one is that a desire is um, what we might call open-ended or not open-ended. So I want to um, eat dinner or eat an apple is not open-ended. I, if I can find an apple and dinner, I, I eat them and then it's done. But when we talk about, for example, uh, how we've opened up the notion of the path and awakening in soul-making dharma as being open-ended, then the desire for soul-making can be open-ended. And the desire then for awakening is open-ended. It's not the case that I reach something and and it's finished. It's open-ended. And that fact of whether a desire is open-ended or whether the object of a desire is open-ended or not makes a big difference to how we feel about it, how we relate to it, how we situate the self with it, and then view the self in relationship to the desire. The whole energy we bring to it, uh, the whole stamina, the whole pacing, all kinds of things. The whole way we see our life and our narrative. So it's, it's, it's quite a important distinction whether a desire is open-ended or not. A desire is also, secondly, in a context or field of conditions, inner or outer, that make it feasible or not, uh, that is likely or not, uh, to achieve whatever that desired goal is, um, or to move towards that desire. And um, that's an important thing to recognize as well. You know, what what is it to have a desire that's actually achievable? What is it to have a desire that's not achievable? And how do we relate to those two differently? What's wise there? 
Um, thirdly, uh, a desire meets an internal pattern of habit. And this is complex and often tricky and, and often not fully conscious. So, for example, um, feeling lack uh, or feeling a habitual sense of lack or expecting disappointment or expecting to be frustrated in one's desires or um, quickly disallowing, uh, not allowing desires, judging desires or uh, the opposites of all those uh, patterns. Um, but those conditions around the desire have a huge effect on what unfolds. So if I have a desire and almost subconsciously I'm expecting disappointment, or I'm judging it, or I don't even allow it to become fully conscious and, and experience it, um, that shapes everything. It has a huge effect on um, what unfolds and whether the desire is felt or experienced as um, clarifying, empowering, healing, freeing. So we touched on this when we, when we talked about the OCD practice, the opening to the current of desire. Uh, a lot has to do with, uh, a, a lot hinges on what, what's the conception of the desire, and can I just shift that if I need to? out of perhaps my habitual way of viewing that desire as suspicious, for example. But all these internal um, patterns that are usually habitual will uh, influence greatly what unfolds. As I said, we're around the desire, with the desire, from the desire, in relationship to desire, in that desire, um, whether it all becomes dukkha, etc., in various ways. So this is part of understanding ourselves as well, understanding um, what's around the desire, what assumptions, conceptions, inclinations, inhibitions, etc. Which of those are uh, kind of habitual patterns and which are just pertain just to this situation, this desire. It's all part of this this journey of understanding, of knowing oneself in, in regard to our desire. And if you like let's say, healing our relationship with desire. And fourth is uh, whether a desire is authentic or not. So I definitely have touched on this at some point uh, in some talks, I can't remember, um, perhaps in Eros Unfettered. You know, sometimes people, uh, as I've pointed out, want so I really, you know, I, I want to practice emptiness, I need to practice emptiness. But actually... To realize emptiness is not really uh, a, a sole desire for them. It's not really coming authentically from the depths of their soul as a soul longing. Um, it's rather um, uh, either they've been indoctrinated that it's important, or it's it becomes the relationship with emptiness practice and that whole journey becomes just an attempt by the ego to measure up to prove itself, to succeed, not to fail, to achieve um, X or Y stage of practice. And that's a very, very different thing than a soul desire. The ego's attempt, desperate, um, often kind of miserable attempt to measure up, 
It's very different from an actual soul desire. So again, part of uh, knowing ourselves, which is part of um, flourishing of our sense of autonomy is to know what's authentic in terms of our desires and what's just um, like like the advertising example I gave, just kind of oh, I've just been conditioned by uh, whether it's an advert for uh, you know a pair of shoes or a car or whether it's an advert for emptiness practice and a certain kind of awakening a certain kind of realization what's authentic to my soul and knowing that, recognizing that, discerning that is really, really important. But this um, journey with desire, journey with um, healing our relationship with desire uh, and eros, um, is is you know fundamental to soul making dharma. It's really important. Um, and sometimes complex, you know. Sometimes people uh, maybe hear some of these teachings, the teachings on eros, maybe references to sexuality, etc. And they hear a little bit, and um, and they want uh, they you know, maybe talk to me and say, I, I, you know, I. I want to heal my eros. I want to heal my sexuality. Um, as someone say, in the last um, X years, I've shut down my eros, my heart, my sexuality. I hear you talk about eros and sexuality when you talk about imaginal practice. I'm, I want to use imaginal practice to reinvigorate and resurrect my sexuality. And some, so sometimes a person actually says that. Um, to me, or thinks that um, to themselves, or whatever. Um, but it can be too much pressure, and and what's absent there, absent there often is the element of the fullness of intention. So I decided I, I've heard all these, all this talk about your and sexuality. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to use imaginal practice to heal my eros and sexuality. And they may even have a preconceived idea of what it, what it would look like to have a healed eros and sexuality. Um, so, you know, then they might try, but but there's not the fullness of intention there. They're not approaching um, the soul making practice and imaginal practice with with the primary full intention of um, soul making and everything that includes, which may include healing may include healing and sexuality, it often does, um, but but the, the intention has shrunk to, I want to heal my sexuality. Um, and so sometimes what happens for a person like that is they, they're approaching the whole imaginal practice and they're trying to do it that way. An image arises and, and they try and be sexual with the image. Um, or, uh, but, then, but then something goes awry, you know? Uh, trying this image arose right I'll jump on that to heal my sexuality and some, the image does something completely different again it's part of the image's autonomy so I'm trying to have this approach I've got a single view on a single intention on not the fullness of intention not the fullness of the scope of soul making uh, of intention for soul making all that that means and all the range and depth and fullness that that means 
which, as I said, might include healing of eros and sexuality and other aspects. But I'm, I'm, I'm approaching it, this narrow view, narrow intention, and the image is just having none of it. And the image just um, pulls out a sword and plunges it into her heart. Uh, and, and that just sh- shocks her and throws her completely off. Better to let, I think, the um, emotions of the dukkha of feeling shut down, of worrying if maybe my eros has gone forever, it used to be alive, I used to be um, uh, enjoy sexuality and my, my sexuality and enjoy sex and enjoy that kind of heart connection, maybe it's gone. The, the, the emotion of the dukkha of that, uh, the emotion, the, the, the dukkha of feeling dry, feeling closed, actually to, to feel that, as we talked a lot about this dukkha and soul making, to include that, to start with that, and let that become image. Let that sense of dryness, of closeness, that sense of worry that something that I used to love and enjoy and used to flow, as waters flowed into my life and lubricated my life, moistened my soul, may have gone forever. The concern there, the dukkha, feeling shut down, etc. Be with that. Be in the crucible with that and let the image arise from that. And maybe the image that arises... um, uh, won't be sexual. But it's addressing the more pertinent issue. I mean, it might be sexual, but, but oftentimes it may be not. It's coming out of that sense of dryness. And it's what, what, what image comes out of that dukkha, if I can be with it in the right way. Or, if you decide to um, deliberately explore a sexual image, again, let the sense of soul-making lead you and respond to that, stay and linger with what feels soul-making, not what the mind thinks needs to happen for my healing. So so much is about this kind of not buying into what the mind uh, habitually thinks and assumes, and trusting the the soul read, the soul sense, the soul resonances in the energy body, in 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 the feeling of resonances and mirroring and echoing and beauty and all of that. And to linger with that, and to resonate with that, uh, rather than getting too narrow with this um, healing intention. So there can be, you know, I've shared a lot of stories, I could have shared so many more, there can be such profound healing that comes out of soul-making practice and imaginal practice. But it needs to be approached in the right way, and then it's included as part of something much bigger, uh, that fuller intention and that element of, of fullness of intention. It, it's interesting, you know, um, sometimes uh, someone comes for, for an interview and they're clear in, in the interview um, that they have an intention, uh, it's, very, it's very clear, and they're talking about it, uh, intention for healing um, their sexuality uh, because of some abuse or trauma or history or several aspects of history or whatever. Uh, and so sometimes I wonder what's, and sometimes um, that opens up beautifully and is very healing through the imaginal. 
Um, so they come, they're clear about their intention for healing that aspect of the being, and it does work. And in other instances, it really doesn't work, as I described um, just now. What's the difference? Um, why does um, one person, uh, in bearing that intention for healing her sexuality, why uh, does the, the, the work with image that comes out of that become fruitful? Both soulful and um, and uh, healing, you know, areas of her sexuality, and another person not. So I wonder about this, um, and I'm thinking of two specific examples. I won't go into the details, but with the example where it worked, with the person where it worked, I feel that um, in part it was because it worked because. Uh, her intention to heal her sexuality was really set in a much larger intention for soul-making. Unlike the first person, where it really didn't work, it just jammed up and weird stuff happened uh, that threw her off, um, she didn't have much experience with soul-making. She just heard a little bit about it, thought, oh, this sounds kind of familiar. I recognize this. And... um, uh, didn't really um, <clears throat> kind of take on the whole, which I realize is an elaborate and complicated and uh, very wordy set of teachings. Um, whereas the second person actually had, she had worked with image and sort of fallen in love with um, imaginal practice and soul-making dharma and had so much richness there. She loved soul-making and she was aware of that. So even when she came, so I'm bringing this thing about my sexuality, and something wants needs healing there, and explaining about past trauma there. Um, but her intention to heal her sexuality was, as I said, set in this much larger intention for soul making that had <coughs> that had become kind of implicit for her, or kind of normal for her um, over her years of practice with soul making. It was also the case with the second person where it did um, flower beautifully in both a healing sense and a soul sense, a soul soul making sense, was that she um, had already had access to a particular sexual image um, of a, a feminine being she gave a certain name to and had this image had visited her and she had worked with her very beautifully um, over over couple of years I think um, so that image was uh, easily accessible and the elements were easily activated already there in relationship to that image and that helped her um, uh, meet the pain and the wounding around sexuality whereas the first person I referred to actually had no no such image or imaginal experience to call upon nor really uh, a, an understanding of familiarity or working familiarity with the whole um, imaginal paradigm but it's tricky all this um, because I, I certainly think, you know, when I, if I think about what's my intention um, when I'm uh, when someone comes for an interview and there's some dukkha, etc., um, and uh, it's often the case that um, y- you know I have an intention for uh, 
for healing. So sometimes it seems that it, it works relatively well to seek out an image with the intention primarily of healing something. As I said, um, even when I'm working as, as a teacher in interviews, um, someone might come with something and um, we're working imaginally, but we're really addressing dukkha. And I can tell that my intention is, um, uh, to some large extent, to, to heal whatever pain they're in or whatever pattern um, of contraction or confusion or whatever it is um, through the image. Um, so, um, you know, helping uh, facilitate or create a space where, for example, the self can become image, um, as we talked about, the self almost becoming other, um, and then in relation with her now, that, that self-image as other, then in relationship with the self, being slow and patient and carefully working on being seen by that image, um, of not... Uh, forcing to be other or different, the appreciation, the love from that image, um, uh, it can also become eros, as we talked about, the eros from that image towards her, uh, even towards her sense of uh, contractedness, uh, towards the contracted self, towards the frozen or jammed up self, towards the withdrawing self, the fearful self, fearful of... um, how things might, uh, how she might sabotage, or this incapacity or confusion or contraction might sabotage a sort of new relationship, and the image coming into relationship with that, with that fear and that contraction and that self, um, and so there's the imaginal work, but I can tell that in my mind at least um, that, as I said. A large portion of the intention at that moment is for is for um, healing and relief of dukkha. Healing, I would say, is a, a better word in this instance. But again, I wonder if it's okay and helpful when uh, only when there is already some degree of experience with imaginal images and a larger commitment to soul-making, i.e. the fullness of intention, as a context in the one intending or leading the practice. In that case, me, if I'm guiding some uh, uh, someone. Or, if we talk about the, the second person I referred to before in relation to her sexuality, in her kind of being with herself and leading her own practice... But it might also be that the, if we're talking about yeah, teaching now, it might also be the one led uh, needs to have um, some uh, love of soul making, some experience with imaginal images and soul making. But even that, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, all kinds of things are possible. But as a general rule, I think healing goes better when there's the fullness of intention. Uh, it's more powerful, richer, more multidimensional, deeper, <coughs> and you get more than just the healing. More than just the healing will open up. So I guess we're on to that, that element of fullness of intention now. Um, really, really important element. Um, you know, 
strictly speaking, I think when we say fullness of intention, it includes the, it means the intention for soul making is paramount. It's the most um, primary intention. But uh, but the but the phrase fullness of intention means it can include other intentions. So it can include, for example, the intention to heal this or that uh, aspect of my being or history or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> but in a way, the intention for soul making is is in itself the kind of largest intention. Um, intention for soul making us because we've said that soul making is in the service of expanding our senses of sacredness um person might think oh an intention for um sensing sacredness is actually the same as the intention for soul making it may or may not be but it it may be that an intention for uh for more senses of sac- more sense of sacredness, um, may kind of uh, unwittingly, subconsciously imply um, a kind of uniform and universal perception or sense of sacredness. Maybe a person doesn't even realize that, um, and that uniform and universal perception or sense of sacredness um, spreads to more and more things or activities. Um, that's different than a potentially endlessly expanding range of kinds and flavors of sacredness. So, do you understand the difference? I might have a sense of, I see everything as God, or I see everything as holy awareness or cosmic love or whatever it is, and I want to see if I can kind of spread that over everything. But that's different than the range of kinds and flavors of sacredness um, endlessly expanding, endlessly uh, proliferating, subdividing, complexifying, becoming, uh, showing varied faces. Um, You know, sometimes when we... um, have an intention to be mindful everywhere, for example, uh, which is a great intention, and to be mindful everywhere and in all activities, so whether I'm going shopping, whether I'm shitting, whether I'm surfing the internet or whatever, can there be mindfulness there? Um, But the perceptions that that will allow just being mindful in all those activities and kind of spreading the sense of mindfulness, um, there will be uh, conditioned to arise by by that attitude of mindfulness, mindfulness and they will be limited in terms of the range and diversity. So yes, you'll begin to see impermanence, you'll begin to see a, a certain level of not-self, You'll have the kind of perception of this just as it is, just just um, this thing or that thing I experience just as it is. You'll have the experience of um, sensations, you know, and the kind of atomistic nature of things, etc. Um, but the range uh, will be limited. The kinds of experience are limited. Certain experiences simply won't open up um, from that. In a similar way, if I narrow down my uh, my idea of what sacredness is, and often as is what, what it looks like, what, how I, what kind, 
kinds of sacredness are available to perception. If, I, if that's narrowed down, either consciously or unconsciously, and that's my intention uh, for, more, for more sense of sacredness, but it's actually quite limited, then that's a smaller intention than the intention for soul-making, which by, uh, by virtue of the way the soul-making dynamic works will constantly show us um, uh, ever more, or gradually show us ever more and more kinds and flavors and faces of sacredness rather than the same sacredness in more places, more and more places. So there's a kind of um, openness um, to surprise, in a way, to new kinds of experiences um, in the fullness of intention that goes with the ride of soul-making, goes with the process, it goes with the ascent to the soul-making dynamic. Sometimes I've wondered whether the... um, this, this element of fullness of intention is actually quite rare. Um, it's quite a... Yes, it's a rare thing to, to, to... It seems to me quite a rare thing to come across in someone. Um, not only as a way of conceiving and really kind of feeling or intending the totality of one's path and practice... That's quite rare. But also at any kind of juncture or moment or stretch of practice or path. So often the wish is just to be, you know, very understandably, really understandably, so often the wish is just to be rid of this dukkha. And um, that wish gains or is given ascendancy, is, uh, gains primacy in in the face and the flow of life and relationships and friendships and work and our psychological patterns. And of course, sometimes it's, there really is a lot of dukkha and it's, it's totally understandable. And sometimes that dukkha seem, you know, feels like it has a really long and seemingly intractable history and it's difficult to bear. But even then, as a sort of, um, even when it's, uh, there's actually not that much great suffering, there can still, it still seems to be quite rare for this fullness of intention, rather than a kind of more narrow intention to be rid of, of dukkha. Um, so I, I don't know if that's the case, but I, I sometimes wonder about it. Um, the good news um, or a piece of good news is that we can always, like the other elements, we can always um, ignite this one, support its opening, Rem- just remind ourselves to can I open to a fuller intention, a wider intention, a more unfathomable intention? Because part of the surprise of, of the journey of soul making is its unfathomability. I don't know where it ends. I can't even, I can't, I can't even peer into its its depths and and its distant possibilities. I don't know what's going to open next. Um, but that uh, we can remind ourselves. We can uh, uh, support, as I said, support the ignition, the opening, the activation um, of that of that node. And that really uh, makes a big difference. So it might be rare, but it's a very powerful, um, it's a very powerful thing when it comes online. 
this fullness of intention uh, makes a big difference, as I said. And as I said, it's it's it, all this is 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 malleable, is um, is labour. It's stuff that moves, and that we can have a say as part of our autonomy in deciding. Can I can I support something different here? If the intention has, I recognise the intention has got locked or closed or narrowed or fixated. Can I? How can I? Um, wield my skill and responsiveness and, and exercise my art in practice to actually allow a fuller intention. So that's always possible because these things are malleable and, and, um, and labile. Uh, so it was a while ago I was working um, in an interview with someone and um, I can't remember if she realised it or if I gently pointed it out but um, not important but at some point she realized that um, she was kind of intent on what she wanted from the image. Uh, that's why right at the beginning of teaching imaginal practice, I stress this thing, what, what do you want from me? Asking the image, what do you want from me? And so often in so many psychologies and even spiritualities that use imaginal, uh, in, sorry, that use imagination, um, there's this sense of what can I get from the image? Of course, we do get lots from the image, but uh, it's a it's a different thing. Uh, talking about relationship with image, it's a very different relationship when we're not primarily uh, relating to the image as what can I get from it. So she realised at some point uh, that she was so intent on what she wanted from the image that she she forgot to ask what the image wants. And in 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 recognizing that, in realizing that, she she actually felt some guilt, uh, which is interesting. But um, luckily, uh, there there wasn't too much reified uh, self around that guilt. Guilt can get very stuck and very jammed up, and it involves a, a quite solid, contracted, reified sense of self. It was more what I call remorse. There was a softness in it, um, etc., and the self wasn't so reified. But actually it was still important, I think, again, back to these issues of pacing, um, autonomy, etc. In this case, um, I was just encouraging her, okay, don't, don't rush at that point. Don't, um, don't rush. Can, can we linger and feel that uh, remorse? It's not really guilt, it's remorse um, about being so intent on what I want that I forget to ask what the image wants. Or, or find out what the image wants. Linger, without rushing, linger uh, with that sense of remorse. Feel it in the heart. Feel it in the body. In her case, she said, I could feel it behind her eyes, she said. And as she did that, so we're back again to the importance of the crucible, of being with the emotion, being, especially if there's a difficult emotion, needs addressing, it needs including, it needs working with, it needs a certain kind of relating to. Um, and in so doing, everything softened. And um, uh, the energy body softened, but it softened everything in in, um, uh, in the imaginal relationship, including the perception of the image and, and the whole thing. Uh, when oh, I mention this because it's related, actually, but when when she was able to do that, then the self actually. Uh, became image as we talked about the self other world uh, started to 
um, become involved in, in the imaginal constellations. We talked about with that, remember the fountain image with the stone fountain, stone basin. Um, uh, so that instead of a real self in relationship or a reified, contracted self in relationship with the imaginal other, the self became image as well. That's part of the softening, the liquefying of the whole process. Um, and then, interestingly, then uh, in relation to her eros and desire, um, the, the, the imaginal self's eros and desire was recognized as divine. As I mentioned, this is well. You don't. You can't have to. You don't have to rush this or make it happen or force it or push something onto the next stage. But this is exactly what I would expect. There's uh, uh, an inevitable, um, in its own time, in its own pacing, organically, naturally. If we don't get in the way, there's a natural inclusion of the different elements of our being. In uh, they become imaginal. They gain dimension, they gain divinity, so that um, the imaginal self's eros desire was then sensed as divine. And of course, the imaginal self, uh, uh, going back to what we said before, the imaginal self is me and not me. The qualities and aspects of the imaginal self are me and not me. So um, it's not me, but it's also me. So it's my eros and desire that also begins to feel and be sensed as as divine. And she had a sense: I am participating in divinity and in and in the divine eros. And with that, then the craving that she felt before in relation to the image, which was also related to a craving in life. Um, the, the craving subsided because the eros was allowed to flourish, and in this case the eros itself was allowed to become an erotic imaginal object, and the sense of divinity, etc., and the whole thing felt very soothing. Uh, so there's eros, but there's a different sense of the eros, a whole other dimension um, uh, to the sense of the eros. We've touched on this before, and the importance of this. Um, and uh, the, the agitation and contraction that she felt earlier was soothed. So there's a kind of healing, if you like, um, in that moment in relation to what was going on, but more long-term, probably even more significant, probably definitely even more significant, is um, that we could say it is a part of insouling our eros and desire. And, and um, the deepest healing is an insouling. So her sense then that might have been the first time, it might be um, the, the first time in a whole series or uh, of, of experiences where she gets to taste the divinity, the dimensionality and divinity of her desire and her eros. Her desire and her eros become ensouled, and that is uh, uh, probably over time uh, a, a profound healing of. Uh, one's relationship with one's eros and desire and with oneself. With one's own mind and heart and soul. So as I said at the beginning, you can get a sense from all this and probably most of you at this point have a sense already from your own practice of just uh, the gifts and the, the beauties and the surprises that... Uh, open up 
from uh, when we take care of the relationship with images and with, with what we sense with soul, when we um, open up those possibilities, when we care for the relationship, when we care for the elements, and all of that's involved. So much gift, so much blessing, so much that is wondrous. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.